information technology, network security, cloud computing, artificial intelligence, and time travel? Well, perhaps not time travel. Welcome to the Fox 114 Technology Podcast. If NASA listened to this podcast in the 60s, we would be living on Mars instead of trying to get back to the moon. Bringing you in-depth guest interviews with today's leaders in IT technology. Here's your host, John Manley. Welcome to the Vox 114 Technology Podcast. My name is John Manley. I am your host for the show. Today's episode, we have Mr. Brad Shio. Brad is a 30-year IT veteran. Brad, are you there? I'm here, John. Awesome, Brad. I appreciate you jumping on today. How has your long holiday weekend been going so far? It's been good. It's dealing with a lot of the technological gadgets and, and whatnot. So that's always a good part of the holiday. Right, man. You just picked up a new gaming monitor, did you not? Exactly. I sure did, man. I've been playing my Grand Theft Auto and Star Wars and all the stuff that nerds enjoy doing off the side. Is it the new Star Wars game that came out earlier this year? Yeah, I have that one. That one's really cool. But the one that I play more often is Battlefront 2. So, yeah, that's a really good one. It's very immersive and it's quick kind of thing where you can just go online, play a couple rounds, and you're satisfied. You don't have to stick with it for that long. That's good for me. <laughs> right. Yeah, both with technology and with kids, sometimes it's hard to sit down for more than like three to ten minutes and <laughs> get a quick game in. That is exactly why it's perfect for me. It fits my lifestyle very well. appreciate you taking time away from Star Wars. You're very, very welcome. So jumping in, you've been a, uh, an IT veteran for a long time, and give a little background on what your role is from day to day right now on a general average day. Well, at this point, I'm an administrator. I'm a network administrator. So fortunately for me, or fortunately, you know, I've got a job, I have to put on a lot of different hats. So it is a management type position. So I oversee everything. I try to delegate as much of the little nuts and bolts as I can. But, you know, in my situation, I still have to be very hands-on. So a lot of it is going to work, Brad, I have this problem, I have that problem. Hey, could you just go ahead and take care of this? Or do I have to, because I only have a very small team of people to work with. So it's a lot of everything. To try to support all your end users and keep up with everything at the same time. Well, right. Just keeping up with the security aspects of it and just some oversight and just make sure that everything is running well. I mean, there's a lot of great people that I work with that help my job become easier. But at the same time, I have to be hands-on just given the fact that, you know, given our size, it's not like we're a huge corporation to where I can just kind of kick back, delegate, delegate, talk, delegate. This is like delegate as much as possible. And then things that can't delegate, I have to get my hands dirty, which I like. That's it. You know, the things I like to do is kind of a perfect position. You know, that's such a, a classic challenge with being IT is, is trying to, especially in the SMB and mid-market space for company size, is that you don't have, essentially, you never have enough staff to help you do everything. So you have to be able to find the right support people, delegate to them where you can, while still, like you said, getting your hands dirty, fixing those day-to-day problems and issues, keeping your network safe, stable, secure, planning ahead, being proactive. With all of those hats and all of those things you need to handle on a daily basis, what do you view as your best time management or scheduling tip that would help folks who are trying to figure out how to not let their day get the best of them. Yeah. Well, one thing that's always worked well for me is help desk. So there's a bunch of free ones out there. There's hateful ones out there. For me, I love putting in help desk. You know, anything that I can do to remind myself <laughs> easily without having to like go through a calendar or make task lists, 
email works great. So I have a help desk system that's integrated with email. And so any little issue, even if it's something really minor, grab my screens flicker or whatever, you know, I don't want to let anything drop. And that's a big mistake I used to make way back when I would just say, okay, I've got that. I'd put it on a list. And then, you know, you lose the list or you forget about it. Whereas email is in your face all the time. If I need to go back and follow up on something or understand my priorities, all of that stuff is tagged inside of an email. And email is there in front of me every day. You do email every day. I can do searches. I can just go to the help desk of the system. And what's also good is tagging the priority level. So this is, you know, high to, you know, highest, medium, low, et cetera. Do that and keep up with that. It definitely helps me quite a lot. Right. Staying organized, essentially. And that's always been the single largest challenge of my career from my angle as well, because you have such a constant flood of inbound while you're still trying to figure out how to stay caught up and think ahead. Right. Taking what seems like the extra time to take the documentation and put everything in writing from an inbound point of view so you don't ever think, oh, I'll remember to get back to this because we all know you won't, right? It's just the way it is. By the time you might get back to that, you have 700 additional things that came in and sounds like you've learned from direct experience that it's worth the extra time that it takes to make sure you officially have a system that you stick to 100% of the time. You always open a ticket. You always put a priority level. You always tag it to your email system, and you follow that every time to the letter. Absolutely. And, and you know, and going back to the question of delegation, you know, just to expand on that a little bit, to the extent that you can get your delegates uh, or, or helpers to be stronger at something that they normally couldn't do, do it. I mean, you can't expect everyone to do everything. You know, I mean, I'm not going to say, John, go open up that server and uh, reconfigure a raid array if I don't, <laughs> if I know that John's never done Oh, that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reconfigure a raid <laughs> array, but you might not like the raid that it comes out with. Oh, <laughs> uh, just hypoth- hypothetical, John. I, I <laughs> no, I'm it. doing it now. That was a verbal. I'm going after it. I, I wasn't trying to badmouth you in any way. I'm sure you could do raids and raid 10. But I'm no, man, I'm massively offended, but we'll try to move on. Yeah, right. <laughs> so stick with a system. You know, like I said, it doesn't have to be email. I like mine being email, being integrated with email. I do too, I actually. Look for it in many different places. Email is actually my preference as well, and I've done a lot. I actually have a two-tiered system of trying to keep up and staying organized with everything. One, email, which I rely on the most heavy. And then I also write, and this is old school, but it has worked the best for me over the years. I keep a paper list on top of my email list, which I rewrite that list every single day. So. Some projects you can't finish on a daily basis. Some things you're waiting on people for. And I make sure I rewrite everything that I haven't done every single day, if for no other reason than to constantly remind me that this is still hanging out there. Even if it's, you know, waiting on someone else, I want to make sure it doesn't just get lost in the blur of my life. Yeah, and I'll do that for projects. We have big projects coming up, and it requires a lot of different steps. Yeah, email is not always best thing, ideal documentation technique. You know, you do, you do want something to where, okay, this is where we are in the project. This is what we're waiting on. This is what it's going to cost. And keeping everything really organized on an inbound and project basis, what would you consider today to be your best strength or your, your strongest area of expertise? Well, yeah, there's a few things there. I mean, I've always been good at server design and implementation. Uh, Windows Server, I've dabbled a lot with Linux servers. I've built Novell environments before. So I've done a lot of different things with servers that uh, have always been challenging that I really appreciate. So there's that. There's the whole kind of nuts and bolts of, of putting together a server farm or whatever it is you're doing. 
when I started off on IT, my first job was building a computer from scratch. You know, back in those days, you could do that and make good profits. So there's that part of it. And then, of course, today now you have everything's running on virtual platforms. So I don't really have that kind of fun aspect. Uh, not that I have the time to, and that's the thing. You know, now that I've kind of grown into, you know, more of a director kind of role, uh, obviously I can't do that, but I can still build the operating system through virtualization products. Still a part of it that they're alive that I like getting my hands on. Really fine-tuning your resources to, to maximize your productivity off your off your virtual or physical boxes at this point. Absolutely. And I feel like after really getting my feet wet for so long, it's kind of nice to sort of back up a little bit and play a management role. And that's what they kind of took me a while to really better at is dealing with vendors, dealing with money, <laughs> uh, you know, trying to get the most out of your buck. Right. Take the extra time to really vet and, you know, figure out what the market is saying and actually figure out real what real features are going to directly impact you versus what just looks shiny and cool. Yeah. And, if, you know, IT is one of those things where it's just exploded in, in the 90s, especially to the point where you, know, you get so many vendors and so many solution providers. They're just all over the place. I mean, security, you know, network. Any, anything you think of that's IT, there's some vendor that's going to say they're best at it. Especially with something soft, something that has variables, because there's not really a hard set metric that says we are the absolute best, because they've all won awards from magazines and companies we've never heard of before, and they're all rated in the magic quadrant. They're all seeming to be the best at what they say they do. But really, there's so many variables that come into play. You really just have to sit down, vet, look at their feature set, look at their support. Is it U.S. based? How fast are they? How long are you going to sit in your queue for? How quick do they get back to you? How responsive are they? Kind of that back end, you know, those soft supports for you in the, in the back end as well really make a huge difference because especially with security, you know, even if you have the best security software, you know, theoretically speaking in the world, eventually something is going to happen where you need to pull in that additional support. And if they're not willing to be there and step up for you in an emergency, well, it probably is not going to be your best option moving forward. Right. And, you know, and one thing that's been valuable for me is, you know, show me your references. So I want to know what other law firms have you worked for and how has your solution benefited them? Try to look at parallel business or something that's very similar to yours and get those references and talk to those people. Talk to Get at least three, four references. Talk to them. Ask questions. How good was their support? How quickly did they do? Were there any, you know, snags or snafus? Take time to make sure that that's going to be the right fit. Right, people in the parallel role. And I like your yeah. focus of those questions as well, focusing on those back end, the stuff that's not going to be on a data sheet or a white paper or an easy comparison between the two. Sure. It's truly how do they react when something goes wrong and how is their support? Those things are so instrumentally important. And as you and I both know, support these days is more of a rare item than it used to be. Oh, absolutely. Support is the key. I mean, look, everybody is going to be good at what they do. If you're a pretty big company and you offer a service, look, you're going to have smart guys. The question is, is are you going to go the extra mile? Stick with us. Because you know, look, there's a lot of IT guys that they don't want to put in the effort. They don't want to put in the time to really get it right. And sometimes that's what it takes. It means, you know, I mean, how many times have I had to turn the system off and work at you know, midnight to three just to right. make sure that this change is not going to affect anyone? Going that extra mile and implement, uh, testing your implementation. And when you do test, it's also testing from different angles. Okay, it works for me, but what if I'm this user, this regular domain user, 
right. logging into this other environment that I'm not logging into, what's going to happen there? And go through all the different ways that you can test something, software, whatever it is. Right, from, yep. For different users, for different access points, for coming in from sure. different from different routes or different offices and making sure that you're not going to have any of those unforeseen connection issues bubbling up, if at all possible. Absolutely. Like you said, work from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the morning and then be there back in the, by 8 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yes. You know why? Because if you decide to sleep late, guess what? Yeah, that's when people are going to complain. Oh, this isn't working anymore. Where's Brad? Where are you? You know, that's <laughs> the thing. Right. You know? Exactly. You can't, don't assume that your tests were thorough. You have to make sure you're around for when people, when you start getting 30, 40 users logging into the system using whatever software that you updated the night before. Okay. What's going to happen when a whole bunch of people hit that software that's responsible for doing their day to day jobs? Talking about early in our conversation, you mentioned Grand Theft Auto and Star Wars. <laughs> I don't know how the Star Wars launch was, but you know, with Grand Theft Auto, that'd be a prime example. And most AAA video games these days are a prime example of not being able to handle the launch. You know, they do their betas, their their demos and all the things ahead of time before the launch and then launch day comes up and the game will crash 55 times. You have latency through the roof. Nobody can connect and it takes them like three days to figure it out every single time they launch a game. I'm like, companies like EA, I'm like, what are you guys doing? You guys know 500,000 copies are going to be sold. You know the number of users and yet it still doesn't launch correctly over the first two to three days, which is, drastically frustrates your user base, regardless if it's customer, external customers or internal employees that you essentially work for, you got to make sure that you test ahead of time and that you're ready to to be there when you go live and, and when things right. take off. And that's looking at your metrics. Take the time to understand you know, bandwidth and speeds and, and the rate at which data is, is kind of going in and out to the different components of what you're hosting, whether it be network, CPU, storage, and understand where those bottlenecks are. It's important to put in the analytical thought process ahead of time. That's excellent advice. So often you have to do migrations and upgrades and, and you know software changes over, especially like Windows and Microsoft and things like that. So that being said, what advice would you give to new or younger IT professionals to help them succeed and, and grow in their careers when they don't have the experience that you have directly under your belt? What would be the most beneficial thing for them to do to to grow and mature. Understand the big players who are basically running the world you know, with IT. I mean, you think about Cisco, Linux, Windows, Microsoft, VMware. You know, understand those big, big players. Figure out which certifications are valuable as well. Get those certifications. You know, look at the marketplace. Look at the look and see what they're hiring and get those certifications. It's not always enough just to have a bachelor's degree or just have, have some sort of general degree. Certifications are, are very important. They were very important when I first started. I mean, if right. I had not gotten, you know, my MCSE, I got my MCSA, I got my CCEA, which is Citrix Certified Enterprise Administrator. If I didn't get any of those, I wouldn't have made it. They wouldn't have hired me. So get the certifications. Take the time to figure out where the industry wants you or going to reward you for specializing in today and say in the next five to 10 years as well. And make sure you get the technical certifications to, to be prepared for that change. Correct. And obviously, love it. Make sure you enjoy it. Get that feeling of implementing something. When you put something into place and now all these people can print or all these people can 
to use a scanner. Yeah, you were the one who did the solution, and it was something that was exciting for you anyway, which is, like you said, a lot of times that's what drives people. You have to have that inquisitive, technical, nerdy-type mindset a lot of times to drive you into IT in the first place. you got to get excited about computers. It was funny. I was describing to a, a company that I hired to do a lot of the like back-end website design and stuff for, for this podcast. And I gave them a description of this podcast. And she was like, oh, that just sounds so exciting. <laughs> I laughed. And I'm like, yes, if you're into technology and IT, like I have, and I love technology, yes, it would be super exciting because it's really awesome, interesting conversations with people who do this every single day. If you right. don't and you're not into IT, it's probably the worst thing in the world. Because... <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's like, you know, listening to lawyers talk about legal issues. You know, that happens all the <laughs> right. time. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about, and I have no interest in understanding what you're talking about. This just sounds you know? awful, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, right. It's, it's like it's like a different language altogether, you know? Exactly, yeah. And you got to avoid that burnout, which is where picking what you love to do and actually understanding what that will result in on a day-to-day basis. Like you said, trying to get a new system up from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the morning. Well, if you don't love what you do, and you're doing that year after year, that's going to burn you out. That's going to wear you down. So it's so important to really pick, like you said, if you don't like coding, well, let's try to avoid coding then. Let's try to focus on the areas that you really, really appreciate and that you love that get you really excited yet and that pay you well at the same time. Well, you know, and and I understood early on that I like the engineering side of IT versus the coding side. The coding side can be fun, but when you do engineering, there's still some code you have to understand. You have to learn some scripting languages and things like that. I tried coding, and it, it's very tedious. I think it takes a very particular type of mind to be good at it. And, and I realized early on, I'm not really good at this. But I am good at understanding all the pieces and parts and putting things together. And, the, and you know, like I said, the engineering side, making sure that you know all these services out of the box are configured extensively, tested extensively. And that's another thing I was thinking about, too, when you ask what advice would you give to new IT professionals. Set up test environments. Set up a domain at your house. Set up a domain controller using Active Directory because you have to test, test, test before you implement. And even after you test, 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 the implementation can be quite different depending on the environment that you're dealing. So to the extent that you can set up, a te- and especially with these nowadays with VMware, uh, all these virtualization products, you know, you could do that. It takes a little horsepower, but you can really test a lot of things given the technology today. A lot easier to do it today than it was when I was getting into IT. So test it, test it, and make sure that you mimic the environment that you're implementing into. So that being said, Brad, I appreciate that. What would you view today as being the most dangerous security threat facing your network? And how do you address this today and, and moving forward? I would say the thing that scares me the most is a user clicking on a bad link or a phishing link and providing credentials or installing malware. That is the thing that scares me the most. So a lot of different strategies you want to put in place there for security. I mean, there's definitely user awareness training. You got to do that. You have to make users aware of what's out there. We hear it all the time on the news of these different companies getting hacked. And most of the time, it's because somebody got duped. Somebody got a link. They thought it was somebody else. Somebody was spoofing another email address and they thought it was off and they clicked something and hence, you know, once you install that malware, it's over with. So there's the user awareness training that I think is important because you really need to try to get people to look 
deeper into what they're seeing on the screen and not just take everything at face value. These emails look great and they look legitimate. Oh, this looks good and that's it. It's over with. So, for example, spoofed email. Okay, I'm getting an email from so-and-so at something.com and it looks legitimate. I'm reading through. So there's always going to be something that's unusual about a malicious email. They're never perfect. And that's the key is getting your users to look and see what is imperfect about this email. If I'm just a little bit hesitant, let's just send it to IT and to sort of look deeper. I mean, there may just be some little tweak in the email header that looks almost like your native environment, but there's an extra letter added on or it's a .net versus a .com or whatever it is. It really shows how concerned. IT is right now with the development and kind of evolution and maturing dynamic threat that spoofing and phishing, it's not what it was five years ago where it was super easy to identify either based on bad English or just really poor attempts. It's getting to the point now where you have to be relatively, you know, you got to take your time. You have to slow down and take your time. And you have to, the important lesson for IT folks here is user education. You have to make sure your users are, they're not just clicking because they're like, oh, well, you know, we have security stuff and, you know, uh, IT people that will take care of this. If anything happens, I can just click on it and move on in my day because we're all in a hurry. They have to understand the personal responsibility. If they click on the wrong thing, they could bring the whole company down. Even if you have great security on your network and you have a wonderful security software that's protecting its malware and because there's different, there's zero-day threats and there's ways to get into your network that once it's in there, it's going to be a problem. And it's going to minimally, even if you can recover all of your data because you have a great backup system and you have everything taken care of and you have extra layers and off-site and things are really sound from that angle, it can take a lot of work and a lot of time to get back up just from clicking in an email and educating those users is really important. Have you guys implemented any sort of phishing testing training where you send out spoofed emails to your users for them to be able to click on, or essentially testing them to see if they'll click on malicious links? Absolutely. Yeah, we've, we've done those. We need to do more of those. People have done a good job, thankfully, so far of identifying those as spoofed emails or fake uh, phishing emails. You know, and another thing, too, is when it does happen, Send it out to everyone and say, look, here's what happened. Don't do this. To the extent that you can prevent <laughs> tattling on somebody. Say, oh, look what this, you don't want to make it sound like, oh, look what this person did. Take all that stuff out. If it's to so-and-so and it was this type of link, you know, obviously take that out. But use the, when people click bad links and it happens, not that often, but it happens often enough, send that to people and say, look, this is what's being sent out. Do not open this email. And this is why you don't open this email. Notice this dot il at the end of the dot com. You know, notice this is a diff totally different domain than it's purporting to be. So use use samples, and then obviously outside of that, you have to have a layered security approach. Meaning, where are my data points hitting, and how do I secure it? Remote access. Okay, you have remote access. Do you have dual factor authentication? Do people need a one password or two password? Where's my data going? How are we how are we securing email? Do you have security software that's scanning your data on within the cloud or within your on-premise servers? Anywhere where your data resides at rest or traversing this network or that network, how are you making sure that your 
moving data in the most secure way possible. And you hit on a really important point there, having a multi-layered protection system, things like two-factor authentication, which is becoming more and more frequently used in the last couple of years. And organizations who are not using two-factor today, users will complain that they have to use two-factor authentication a lot of time because they don't like the inconvenience, but that's because they don't have the understanding of what could happen if you don't take that extra step of two-factor authentication. It's like your bank, right? You don't want anybody to be able to hack your your account and your password and get into your bank. Nobody complains about two-factor authentication to get into something that's really critically important to them. And educating your user that this might seem like an inconvenience, but so was being down for a day or two because we had a, a major network breach. Well, and, and that's just the world we live in today. And unfortunately, people and companies have learned the hard way. So in, in a way, it's it's good these things have happened because there now we know what to do to prevent that from happening in the future. But it's going to happen again. I mean, and that's the thing. Hackers are going to find new, very creative ways to get into your system. The thing is, I mean, look, computer people have this tendency to look at a computer as this sort of system of perfection because it's a computer. But computers were... Are, are built by humans, <laughs> coding created by humans. So far. <laughs> so far, yeah, it may change, right? And humans make mistakes, and we always will make mistakes. So nothing, technology is never going to be perfect. Never bulletproof. forget what the flaw was called about a year or two, year, two years ago with Intel processors. Remember that? What was that called? Like March of 2018, or maybe it was March of 2019 even, and there was some sort of uh, systematic flaw on the architecture of the processors where if you had a data center environment that if you had, say, AWS as an example, if you had a system running on AWS and you had admin credentials to get into your shared part of that system, you could end up getting into the entire Intel processor, which would ultimately give you a backdoor into everybody's data. I remember that. Right. That was a big problem for a little bit until they figured out how to ultimately put a patch on that hole. But that scared a lot of people when it came to cloud computing. And that scares me about cloud computing. I mean, that is the future. And, you know, our network is primed up to go to the clouds. <laughs> but like you said, yeah, you're sharing processor resources. I mean, and that's going to be the point at which these hackers will develop techniques to extract data. Because, oh, look, now I've got it's not just one company using all these processors. It's many companies right. using these processors. Right. You have a naturally built backdoor right into the system just by the design architecture. Right. And look, there's always a way to hack data. Not everything is. If you start knowing these ciphers and, and you start understanding, oh, okay, all these ciphers that are used over and over again or ones that aren't, haven't been improved over time, yeah, eventually it's just a matter of time before they decrypt that information and, and hackers will just get what they want if they're interested, if it's of value, if you're, you know, say, Sony Corporation. Sony had a big breach a few years ago as well from a security side. Yeah, well, you know, and that's another thing, too, that, that people tend to forget is to make sure you're up to latest version of your BIOS. Right. And I think it's overlooked a lot as well, too, a BIOS, because, you know, people upgrade their, their windows and their servers and, you know, obviously the security software and things like that. But it's easy to overlook a BIOS, especially from an end user machine perspective. Well, it certainly is because it's just a little BIOS chip that's just sitting there. It's got firmware and it's just like, oh, well, it's working. What do I have? Why would I have to update it? Well, there's a lot of reasons you have. Updated security is for one. And you know, there may be some new features that you're not tapping into uh, upgrading firmware in the BIOS. 
BIOS upgrades have gotten solid over the last few years for the most part, but I think everybody's had the experience of upgrading a BIOS and then, oh, I, I bricked it. That's not good. Yeah, you have a situation where virtualizations of, of software cannot be done without the latest firmware. I mean, there's certain features that you unlock in a CPU are sometimes dependent upon the firmware of your motherboard. Quite secure and up to date and compatible with anything that you're going to have to do from a from a software, you know, moving forward point of view. And you know, as, as we close here, Brad, if, if looking back on, on your career. If there was a magic reset button that you wish you would have put into place sooner in your career earlier or from a more documented standpoint, what would that have been? Probably security compliance. Now you have a lot of types of compliances that are sort of the overreaching, but they're reaching into other businesses. You've got the HIPAA compliance, PCI compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of them out there, SOX 1, SOX 2. It's kind of new to me. Now it's like, oh. If I had done that sooner, I would be in a much better position. Right. Especially over the last couple of years, like you mentioned, there's so many ones that have been in place but not fully enforced, you know, from a legal perspective. And then as we continue to grow and threats continue to evolve, it kind of continues to pile up more and more and more. And it, if you don't get ahead of it, it's hard to keep up. Exactly. That that topic is a little bit painful for me because it's like there's so many different types of compliances and I have to think. And, and to go through these compliances is rough. You would not believe how stringent these compliances will define so as far as what are you doing with your data? How What level is your encryption? How are you backing up? Are your backups encrypted? What level of encryption do you use for your backup? A good lesson there, which when you're talking about that with the encrypted backups, it, it reminded me even if you don't have a requirement to hit these different levels of compliance, they're a really good benchmark to be able to look at things that you might not have otherwise thought of. So even if you don't have to be HIPAA compliant, we'll take a look at the HIPAA compliancy rules because it might bring up things like a encrypted DR backup that you might not have otherwise thought of. So you can plug a hole in your network. And then one day, if you get a customer or your situation changes, you already understand how to deal with that compliancy and you did it proactively. Well, and that's what I was just going to say too, is that you know, these aren't necessarily bad things. They're tough to do. But at the same time, when you read through these things, like, oh, well, you know, I didn't really think about that. I, we're not really doing that. Are we really encrypting this to the extent that you can encrypt every piece of data that you're exchanging emails with? And, and at what point does it become unencrypted? When can they read these? When are certain when are certain pieces of data sent as clear text? And you'll be surprised when it happens. Not everything that you send out of your network is can, will be encrypted. And so right. depending on where it's going and, and, and what network it's traversing through. So the extent that you can make that happen, make it happen. So it's not always a bad thing. I, you know, I keep saying, oh, you know, compliance is a headache. It is a headache because every time I read through it, it almost feels impossible to reach that level of compliance. But the more and more you can break it down, the more you can sort of get there, the more secure you'll be. You have to be proactive. You have to get there before they can get to you. That's great advice, right? You get there before they get there. Yeah. You don't just want to be defensive. You want to be offensive. And that's why there's so much money in security compliance right now, because it's so hard to do. And there's so many hackers and and people out there that are trying to breach your data. And it gets to be this this whirlwind of, of something that you have to do. You have to be able to understand like you said, that even if you're hands-on and even if you like to do the work and you prefer to do the work, that especially in the SMB mid-market space, you don't have the the bandwidth 
to truly specialize, especially in security, to the degree that a company that that's all they do are, is going to be able to, to take care of that for you. And sometimes it's more cost effective, both with time and money, to just find those perfect partners who can do a phenomenal job and really take care of it for you. Absolutely. And that's one thing I've learned, you know, last 10 years of being in the position I've been in. And, and that's one thing I struggled with when I first started. I wanted to do everything because that's kind of what I did before was every, I was just a hands-on engineer. But some level, you just have to learn how to delegate. Even if it means you're not delegating to somebody in your internal team, you're having to go through third parties because that's what they do. That's what they're really good at. So you just have to deal with it. But at the same time, be diligent and pay attention to what they're doing. Make sure that you know, documentation staying on top. Make sure they're documenting everything. That's one thing I guess we didn't really touch on in our conversation here is the importance of documentation and just, just keeping records of everything done to systems, what changes you've made, you know, as, as much as you can write down specifically what it is you've done or what anyone else has done to the system in the past, it'll really help you in the future. Right. Yeah. Use a log manager or manually document that and ties into, you know, making sure you take the time to document inbound requests. Also very important to document what changes that you're doing or anybody is doing, because even if you did it at the rate that you have to move every day, you're not going to remember what you did, and it's really difficult to try to recall or trace back your steps. So take the time to really thoroughly document your changes to your network, your, your historical places that you were standing your, your, from a network perspective, as well from a licensing perspective. So that's really great advice. And Brad, I appreciate you coming on and the excellent advice that you gave to our listeners. And thank you so much. Sure. Have a really great New Year's, okay? Thank you. Thanks so much, John. Nice talking. Thank you for joining us this week on the Vox 114 Technology Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, vox114.com. That is vox114.com, where you can listen to our full archive of episodes, check out our members-only content, and subscribe so you'll never miss a show again. While you're online doing internet things, if you found value in this show, leave us a rating on iTunes or tell a friend about the show. All of your friends, or even people you don't like, telling them is okay too. Tune in each week for our next episode. And remember, if you don't like the answer, perhaps you need to find a new way of asking the question.